This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Stuart Kelly. I'm the literary editor of Scotland on S Sunday, and I'm very slightly awestruck at the moment. Um, ten years ago, I met a literary agent at a party in Edinburgh, and it didn't get off to a particularly good start because I referred to one of her authors as writing little better than Sunday ITV drama fiction. Over the course of the next couple of hours, we sort of got to know each other better, the way that literary people do by sort of saying, so do you like Pynchon or Bellowen? Do you like um, Anita Bruckner or Angela Carter? Uh, do you think Dave Eggers is the next big thing or is he an old thing dressed up new? And eventually she said to me, have you read Robert Coover's Pinocchio in Venice? And to my immense shame, I had to say, actually, I haven't. Um, the next day in the post, I got this very copy of Robert Coover's Pinocchio in Venice from the agent in question, with a note inside saying, if you play your cards right, I'll send you spanking the maid as well. Um, readers, I married her, and uh, I <laughs> fell in love with Robert Coover at the same time. Um, at story. the time, it was quite difficult to get Robert's books in the UK. It's much easier now in that Penguin have done the first three of what we hope will be a much more complete uh, edition of his work, Prick Songs and Descants, Gerald's Party, and Briar Rose and the infamous Spanking the Maid. There's many other works that could easily be uh, made into modern classics as well, including The Public Burning, The Origin of the Brunists, and of course, Pinocchio in Venice, and A Night at the Movies, his wonderful short story collection where we see what happens when they're not on camera. Um, Robert has been incredibly influential in the development of the Electronic Literature Organisation. We're maybe not going to speak too much about that today, and if it's a mark of how beloved and important an author is, who are willing to stand up and say how much they love him, then this is a, a master. People like uh, Dave Eggers, like Kate Atkinson, like Malcolm Bradbury, like Salman Rushdie, and of course, my absolutely favourite uh, quote of all from them from the late Angela Carter. He is unfair, rude, cruel, and murderously funny, a master. Robert Coover is one of the people who has completely redefined what the novel is and what the novel can do, and it's an immense privilege to be with him here today. Robert Coover. Thank you. Uh, we're going to have a conversation, but we thought we ought to start by listening to a couple of stories. Uh, and these are not, uh, the, t the tendency of the novel form is uh, to expand and expand, and I'm in the middle of one that I began 10 years ago, and it just won't stop, and it's over 400,000 now. So I thought, it, I, instead of reading that, uh, <laughs> I've uh, been doing some rather short things, which gratefully uh, The New Yorker has been publishing, so they, they pay pretty well, and it's covered me through this long hiatus of uh, unfinished novel. And um, uh, I, I brought a couple of those along to, 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 to let you hear. Some of you may have already seen them, but one that appeared recently was called Going for a Beer. He finds himself sitting in the neighborhood bar drinking a beer at about the same time that he began to think about going over there for one. In fact, he has finished it. Perhaps he'll have a second one, he thinks, as he downs it and 
asks for a third. There's a young woman sitting not far from him who is not exactly good-looking, uh, but good-looking enough and probably good in bed as indeed she is. <laughs> did, she, did he finish the beer? Can't remember. What really matters is, did he enjoy his orgasm or even have one? This he is wondering on his way home through the foggy night streets from the young woman's apartment, which was full of Cupid dolls, the sort one at carnivals, and they made a date, he, as he recalls, to go to one, where she wins another. She has a knack for it, whereupon they're in her apartment again, taking their clothes off, she excitedly cuddling her new doll in a bed heaped with them. He can't remember when he last slept, and he's no longer sure as he staggers through the night streets, still foggy, where his own apartment is. His orgasm, if he had one, already fading from memory. Maybe he should take her back to the carnival, he thinks, where she wins another Cupid doll. This is at least their second date, maybe their fourth, and this time they go for a romantic nightcap at the bar where they first met where a brawny dude starts hassling her. He intervenes and she turns up at his hospital bed, bringing him <laughs> one of her Cupid dolls to keep him company, which is her way of expressing the bond between them, or so he supposes, as he leaves the hospital on crutches, uncertain what part of town he is in or what part of the year. He decides that it's time to call the affair off. She's driving him crazy, but then the brawny dude turns up at their wedding and apologizes <laughs> for the pounding he gave him. He didn't realize, he says, how serious they were. The guy's wedding present is a gift certificate for two free drinks at the bar where they met <laughs> and a pair of white satin ribbons for his crutches. During the ceremony, they both carry Cupid dolls that probably have some barely hidden significance, and indeed do. The child she bears him, his or another's, reminds him, as if he needed reminding, that time is fast moving on. He has responsibilities now, and he decides to check whether he still has the job that he had when he first met her. <laughs> he does. His absence, if he has been absent, is not more marked upon, but he is not congratulated on his marriage either. No doubt because, it comes back to him now, before he met his wife he was engaged to one of his colleagues and their co-workers had already thrown them an engagement party, so they must resent the money they spent on gifts. It's embarrassing and the atmosphere is somewhat hostile, but he has a child in kindergarten and another on the way, so what can he do? Well, he still hasn't cashed in the gift certificate, so for one thing, what the hell, he can go for a beer, two in <laughs> fact, and he can afford a third. There's a young woman sitting near him who looks like she's probably good in bed, but she's not his wife and he has no desire to commit adultery, or so he tells himself as he sits on the edge of her bed with his pants around his ankles. Is he taking them off or putting them on? He's, he's not sure, but now he pulls them on and limps home, having left his beribboned crutches somewhere. On arrival, he finds all the Cupid dolls, which were put on a shelf when the babies started coming, now scattered about the apartment, beheaded and with their limbs amputated. One of the babies is crying, so while he warms up a bottle of milk on the stove, he goes into its room to give it a pacifier and discovers a note from his wife pinned to its pajamas, which says that she's gone off to the hospital to have another baby and she'd better not find him here when she gets back because if she does, she'll kill him. 
he believes her. So he's soon out on the streets again, wondering if he ever gave that bottle to the baby or if it's still boiling away on the stove. He passes the old neighborhood bar, and he's tempted, but decides that he's had enough trouble for one lifetime and is about to walk on when he's stopped by that hulk who beat him up and who now gives him a cigar because he's just become a father and drags him into the bar for a celebratory drink, or rather several he has lost count. The celebrations are already over, however, and the new father, who has married the same woman who threw him out, is crying in his beer about the miseries of married life and congratulating him on being well out of it, a lucky man. But he doesn't feel lucky, especially when he sees a young woman sitting near them who looks like she's probably good in bed and decides to suggest that they go to her place, but too late, she's already out the door with the guy who beat him up and stole his wife. So he has another beer, wondering where he's supposed to live now and realizing it's the bartender who so remarks while offering him another on the house that life is short and brutal and before he knows it, he'll be dead. He's right. After a few more beers and orgasms, some vaguely remembered, most not, one of his sons, now a race car driver and the president of the company he used to work for, comes to visit him on his deathbed. And apologizing for arriving so late, I went for a beer, Dad, things happen. <laughs> Says he's going to miss him, but it's probably for the best. For the best what, he asks, but his son is gone, if he was ever there in the first place. Well, you know, life, he says to the nurse who has come to pull the sheet over his face and wheel him away. When we, uh, when we talk about uh, writing from my perspective, we're often talking about new things. So I wrote a piece once called uh, The New Thing, and this is it. She attempted, he urging her on, the new thing. The old thing had served them well, but they were tired of it, more than tired. Had the old thing ever been new? Uh, perhaps, but not in their experience of it. For them, it was always the old thing. Sometimes the good old thing, other times just the old thing. They're like air or stones, part, so to speak, of the furniture of the world into which they had moved and from which sooner or later they would move out. It was not at first obvious to them that this world had room for a new thing, it being the nature of old things to display themselves or to be displayed in timeless, immutable patterns. Later they would ask themselves why this was so, the question not occurring to them until she had attempted the new thing. But for now, the only question that they asked, well, he asked it actually, when she suggested it was, why not? A fateful choice, though not so lightly taken as his reply may make it seem, for both had come to view the old thing as not merely old or even dead, but as a kind of alive or dead ancestral curse, inhibitory and perverse and ripe for challenge impossible or even unimaginable, though the new thing seemed, until she tried it. And then, when with such success she did, her novelty responding to his appetite for it, the new thing displaced the old thing overnight. Or not literally, of course, the old thing remained, but cast now into shadow, as the furniture of the world, shifting without shifting, lost its familiar arrangements. 
the old thing was still the old thing, the world was still the world, its furniture, its furniture, but yet nothing was the same, nor would it ever be, they knew again. It felt, though as in a dream, so transformed was everything like waking up. This was exhilarating, his word, liberating hers, and greatly enhanced their delight. She whooped, he giggled, this was fun, their delight in the new thing, which they both enjoyed as much and as often as they could. Indeed, for a time, it filled their lives deliciously, altering perception, dissolving habit, bringing them ever closer together, illuminating what was once obscure while making what before was ordinary now seem dark and alien. This was the power of the new thing, and also, they knew this from the outset, its inherent peril. The new thing, being truly new, not merely a rearrangement of the old, removed the ground upon which even the new thing itself might stand. The old thing's preclusive patterns were like those frail stilts that floodplains housing was erected on. The new thing joined forces with the cleansing flood as did they in their unbound joy, having anticipated all this from the start, though perhaps not guessing then how close together delight and terror lay, nor back then considering as she, he urging, made the new thing happen, how indifferent to their new creation would be both world and thing. Indifferent but not untouched, all shook, and they, the shakers, were not themselves unshaken. Oh, this too, even trembling, they ardently embraced, though perhaps they whooped and giggled less. Scary, she laughed, reaching for him, and he clinging to her and thinking as he fell that some principle must be at stake, something to do with time, cause, and motion, perhaps, so much the better. Thus, even if somewhat apprehensively in such an altered yet indifferent world, they found pleasure in what might in others inspire dread, their own apprehension mitigated by their shared delight in this new thing, their delight dampened less by antique fears of being swept away in metaphoric floods than by their awareness that the new thing did not, could not know them, nor would or could the world in which they'd brought it into being. The new thing, which was theirs, was, alas, not really theirs at all, nor could it ever be. Moreover, her logic this, they had chosen the new thing, chose it still, but with the old thing lost from view, what choice was theirs in truth? Were they not, in fact, the chosen? And his reply, ah, let's go back to the old thing just for fun and see. And did they? Could they? Of course. The old thing was waiting there for them as though neither they nor it had ever gone away like an old shirt left to yellow in the closet, an abandoned habit lost friend discovered in a crowd. And they found new pleasure in returning to it, or at least comfort, and something like reconciliation with the entrenched and patterned ways of the world. The old thing reminds me of my childhood, he acknowledged gratefully, and she why this appetite for novelty anyway? When we are here so briefly, we don't even have time enough to exhaust the old. Thus they enjoyed the old thing anew and in ways they had not done before, chiefly by way of ceasing all resistance and they told themselves that they were pleased. Of course, they had to admit after knowing the new thing, it was not quite the same, the old thing. Sort of like dried fruit, she said, sweet and chewy now, but not so juicy as before, and he agreed 
more like body than person, you might say, more carcass than body. They experimented, giving the old thing a new wrinkle or two, but could not sustain the revived interest in it. It was still the old thing, and it still oppressed them back to the new thing which was still there and was delightful and exhilarating as before. They were pleased and did not have to tell themselves they were. What fun, truly. But the new thing, like the old thing, no matter how at first they denied this to each other, was also not the same as it had been before. He the first to admit it when regret, bat-like, flickered briefly across her brow. No, she objected, falsely brightening. It's not it, but we who have changed by going back to the old thing. Yes, you were right in the first place, he said. We were not free to choose, but we can't go back to the new thing either. No, she agreed. We must try a new, new thing. And so they did. And again, beginning to get the hang of this new thing thing, they found joy and satisfaction and close accord with one another. Out with old things and old new things too, they laughed, falling about in their world-shaking pleasure. But was this delight in the new, new thing as intense as that they'd felt when they'd first tried the old, new thing? No, they couldn't fool themselves far from it. So when the new, new thing bumped up provocatively against the old, new thing, they were filled with doubt and confusion and no longer knew which of the two they most desired or should desire, if either. Out of their uncertainties came another new thing, his handiwork this time, momentarily delightful and distracting, but soon enough, this too was replaced by yet another, now hers, itself as soon displaced. Both now were separately busy at what had become more task than pleasure, the devising of new things, now mostly what they did. By now, even the new thing's newness was in question. I am lost, she gasped, falling to her knees. He called out from across the room, I felt oppressed by the old thing, now I feel oppressed by the new. This is probably, she said, speaking to him by telephone, just the way of the insensate world. We were fooled yet again. No, no, I can't accept that, he replied by mail, else no new thing is a new thing at all. His letter crossed with hers. My unquenchable appetite for novelty is matched only by my unquenchable appetite for understanding. What a clown. I'm deeply sorry. Adding, I've now become a collector of old things. There's not much fun in them, but there is satisfaction. But wait, he wrote in his diary. Does not the invention of one new thing insist by definition upon a second and a third, a fourth? And indeed, is that not, in fact, the sequential generation of new things, the real new thing that we have made? And is that not delightful? He thought if he tore this diary entry out and sent it to her, he might well see her again, and they could have fun in their old new things way. But the time for all that was itself an old thing now, and anyway he no longer knew now after the flood where in the world she was. In anticipation. In anticipation of our discussion, because we kind of, I think there'll be some kind of focus on myth and tale, I have a little piece that I wrote uh, for uh, an anthology of um, male commentary on fairy tale, folk tale, uh, Kate Bernheimer's uh, um, second anthology, the first was by women. It's called Tale Myth Writer, and I hope we'll have some, it'll, it'll be of some use. 
tail is the underbelly of myth. Myth is head, tail, body. Myth, power, tail, resistance. Myth, nice, tail, naughty. Myth, structure, tail, flow. Myth, king, tail, fool. Myth, sacred, tail, profane. Myth, father, tail, child, though the child, as always, is the father's father. Myth, tragic, tail, comic. Myths are communal, dreamlike fantasies, Freud's daydream of the race. Tales are more about a person's waking life, where animals talk, magic abounds, and revenge is sweet. Myth lives in bounded places between which wars ensue. Tales are, like many of their heroes, homeless wanderers, rarely partisans. The folktale has no landlord. Whereas myth is meant to introduce the young to the reality principle, tale is said to be a subversive alternative to the official notion of reality. Yet both are archly conservative, madly wishful, shy of the real. What if in myth is truth, dogma, in more modest tale a populist teasing of the imagination? Yet tale is governed by dogma too, a subtler one and more tenacious. Genre is what it's sometimes called, pattern, the way things are. Myth environs us, tales do too. They, like the writer, reside within the consciousness industry. Much of that industry is devoted to sleep and a pampering of the unconscious. Consciousness is an accomplishment which requires enormous effort and so can be maintained only for limited periods before, with great relief, we sink back into a mindless stupor. Tale has heroic tales about the effort myth celebrates the stupor. The consciousness industry, like any other, survives on profits, and stupor is more profitable than true consciousness, and stupor is more profitable than that true consciousness they ostensibly espouse, and so, feeling blameless, they peddle mostly soporifics. The emergence of full consciousness is so rare and difficult, it's often felt as supernatural. Sleep, our original Edenic, Edenic condition, the seductive natural state. Odysseus, the adventurous tale hero, resisted the seductive siren songs of blissful sleep, choosing the pursuit of wakeful consciousness, even so he had to be lashed to the mast, but most don't. It's too hard, hurts too much. Settle into prime time, go to a movie, watch a game instead. Better not to read at all. Certainly nothing by the writer, who, as the story goes, tale once upon him, sallies forth on the next and next adventure. Myth, same family, stays at home and rules the roost. The writer, tale-like, sallies forth as well, and as though a character in tale's own tale bumps into tale upon the road. Sometimes they fight, sometimes they carouse and drink together. The writer is always wary, though, for tale's a tricky bastard without scruples who can catch you from behind and steal your wit without your even knowing it. That's bad, but can be worse when myth's the foe. To be chicaned by tail, the writer knows, is not the same as falling into myth's iron clutches. Tail will often laugh and let you go, myth's fiercer, humorless, unyielding. Tail sends you down the open road, even if it's always the same open road. Myth's mansion, for all its inviting intricacy of well-appointed rooms and corridors, has drawn curtains and locked doors and attic horrors one cannot always avoid.
The writer, housebreaker by profession, intrudes brazenly upon Myth's mansion at the risk of getting lost and never coming out again, and at the greater risk of finding comfort in it, as so many do, and forgetting the reasons for breaking in, which are to do a bit of creative redecorating, let the light in, turn the statuary back to flesh again, stake revenant hearts with jokes, yes, but more than that, its foundations are imaginary. The writer knows this to bring the whole house down, if possible. Thus the writer, too, madly wishful, avoids the real. Such are the self-delusions necessary for all romantic quests, and this no exception. For myths no pushover, has been in the neighborhood for as long as memory. The writer's days, contrarily, are precious few. You just get started. Um, one surprise, tales here. Myth's unreliable servant, guest's sometime guide, providing relief from tedium and occasional glimpses of the floor plan. Myth is master of this domain, and tale is much constrained, unsmiling, out of rags and into uniform, unvoiced by his master's insistence upon proprieties, but able still on the sly to lift carpets or floorboards to reveal the buried remnants of the original humble outdoor stage, or to blight the grandeur of a room with a gassy burp or the subtle stubbing of a toe. Tale also, with quiet nods, points out the exits, useful even when a trickster tale, their trompe lils only. If nothing else, tale touring targets keeps the writer in motion. Keep moving. That's what Odysseus said. Stop your ears and keep moving. The writer from time to time, when weary of these airless exploits, escapes to mix again with a hoi polloi and breathe the common air, and looking back, sees that Myth's mansion, for all the writer's heroic depredations, is still as imposing as ever, seemingly unchanged. Hmm. Does it tilt just a little to the left now? Is that a broken window? No, probably just the way the shadows fall. Along comes Raggedy Tail again, and they have a friendly tussle just for old time's sake. And while Tail has the writer pinned in response to the writer's disheartened mien, tells stories of heroes who, against insuperable odds, defeated giants, beheaded dragons, won princesses and kingdoms. And in each of these stories, the writer knows the hero was defeated, but the story doesn't say so. The moral being, you are a clown. This is what you do. Take your falls, get up again to take another. Tale also tells the story of the minstrel whose only listeners were animals who simply wished to eat him but were stayed by the minstrel's music. Eventually, of course, when the minstrel ran out of fresh tunes, they did eat him. But meanwhile, the consciousness industry maintains Myth's mansion very well, repairs the road tale travels on, and tolerates the writer when it is convenient to do so, preferring marginalization to the gallows, not always, well aware that the writer's bad behavior will be industrial fodder a generation on, the stuff of t-shirts and classrooms, and bitter laments about the very industry that profits from them. Thus, the writer's heroics, for all their grand ambitions, go largely unnoticed in their time, come to little, except for irony. It is the gift of irony, denied myth, and mostly over tale's head, that is the writer's portion. Robert, to begin with, you studied Slavic studies at university. 
And it seems that the big theoretical writers on, on the Slavic studies were, were Todorov looking at the folktale and Bakhtin looking at the carnival. And these seem to be two things that have gone right the way through your work. Was it then that you first became acquainted with these ideas? No. No, <laughs> no I'd, I'd like to say so because it would make a much brighter person out of me. I look much more serious. Um, I, I ended up in Slavic studies because I, I ended up my senior year, a kind of dissolute sort of college life. Um, in which uh, it was my ambition to take something in every single department on, on campus and consequently develop no major concentration. And uh, I had, uh, uh, it was wartime, it was Korean wartime, and I was about to be drafted, and I didn't want to be drafted. I wanted to, you know, uh, postpone it by going to officer school or something like that with my degree. But I had to get the degree, and that wasn't so easy. So. I, uh, I uh, went around to all the departments where I'd had some classes, and you know, I had a bit of everything, so I could talk to just about anyone on campus. And uh, they said, yes, you, you could major, and this would take about three more years. Well, I, the draft board wasn't going to give me three more years. I had to do it right away. <laughs> and every department, I got the same response, and so it looked like, you know, I was in trouble. But I had been just out of affection for the Russian writers, really, not the, not the theorists. Um, had been um, taking uh, Slavic language course. Just instead of taking French or Spanish, I just took Russian. You know, it was one of the things. It was kind of a, a thing to do at a time as the Cold War era. It was like a, a fascination with uh, with uh, um, the enemy, as it were. And uh, I, so I went to the Russian department, and I had as little to offer them as I had any other. But what I did have to offer was my name, because uh, at that time Russian studies were very minimal, and the students they had were all something ski, you know, it was Russian background or, or Slavic background of some sort. And the excitement of having somebody with my name that they could put up as this is a student uh, gave them a, a, a des deep desire to invite me in. So um, the chair of the department, who was an eccentric little character, um, said that, uh, well, uh, what courses did you take? And I said, well, your English, did you read any, any Russian novels? And I said, well, yeah, we read uh, whatever, War and Peace or something. Said, that's it, that's credit. Gave me that English <laughs> course for it. And we went down every course. He found something just that hinted a bit at being linked somehow to Slavic studies and was able to credit it. So he developed it as a major with the only stipulation was that I had to take uh, another year of the language, a, a year of the second Slavic language, and all of his courses. <laughs> and so uh, I had to agree to that, and, uh, and that's how I got my Slavic studies degree. And um, my real serious engagement with, um, with the intellectual world has you know, less other than just the voracious reading I was doing all the time. Uh, came after I left the Navy and went to the University of Chicago. And at Chicago, again, I still didn't want to settle down into any one thing. I still found a committee there to let me drift about through six different departments. And even though and I broke the rules and ended up in about nine or ten different departments, taking something from all of them, uh, but primarily uh, was in philosophy. And I got all my kind of hard, what, what my soft head could accomplish in a hard way, uh, I got through that programming. I, of course, was with a, the Chicago critics and 
doing a lot of reading that was demanded by them, and so I did encounter these people at that time. It's interesting when you say there about not wanting to be in one particular department, and that seems very typical of the way that your stories have always worked, that each one um, resists and escapes an overarching story. It'll do iterations of different stories. And I was wondering, was there a sort of political edge to that, that you didn't want a, you didn't want somebody else's big story told, so you were constantly evading it and ducking underneath it? Mm -hmm. I don't think so, but I can, I can, I think I can respond to the, to the, what's, what's, what the mentality was behind what I was, I think what I, by the way, that business of jumping around in a lot of different, I think that's very writerly. I, I, I've known a lot of writers who do this and that's how they, that's how they relate to the world. If uh, I, students that I get it uh, through, well, through the best writers that I find are very restless uh, staying inside any kind of programmatic uh, schedule of they, they, As you write, you want to read something right then. It may be something very far afield, but it's something that just you, you're going to go straight for this thing and to waste your time in, a, in an English lit course when you're not the least bit interested in that at the time. That's, uh, I think that's very typical of writers. It's not typical of scholars and uh, there are some very scholarly writers who, um, in fact, are more scholars than they are writers and become uh, professors and deans and so on, and um, and occasionally get a book out. But the, uh, the 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 notion of how this these patterns go and whether there's something political, um, I don't. I, you know, everything is political. It's that that every decision we we make has some something political about it or has some consequence. But I was really taken by the, the thought of what was the, what, how to define the literary mainstream. What was it? And it was my conviction early on that the mainstream was not something that existed, but something that had to be cut. So what was mainstream had these little moments through time that kind of triggered the direction that, that writing would go. And it wasn't that I had a lot of confidence in myself about being able to uh, score that path that's going to create the new mainstream. It was that it was what I was interested in. So if I read writers, it was whether or not they were kind of loafing around in the backwaters of literature, perhaps very famous, but not producing work that excited me, or whether they were, uh, you know, trying hard to do something. That, that cut new, a new direction. So those writers fascinated me. And um, it wasn't emulating them, but emulating their effort at their moment. So for example, one such writer uh, was Cervantes, who was yeah. cutting new ground. Yeah. And the way he did it excited me. And how the, he's often been compared to the postmodernists, for example, because of all his little, but it, he was doing something that was very clearly at the leading edge. And, um, and his predecessor, uh, by a century, was another writer that I've always been really fascinated by, it was Fernando de Rojas, who wrote the Celestina, yeah. and who, who literally kind of opened up the possibility of the Spanish golden age of both drama and literature. And that, that effort, to and he, of course, was uh, not a, a, an academic guy. I mean, he was a, uh, or even a writer, really. Yeah. He wrote the one book and uh, quit. 
And, uh, but what he was doing at that moment of his writing, at, at, still just a student, was this, had this focus on what literature could do next, or at least that was part of what was driving him. So that becomes, of course, the enemy then is the rest of the establishment. So you, you feel a little bit like you're politically engaged. And since the stories you want to, you're working with the whole idea of story, it's the idea that everybody is kind of conditioned by story. We, we get story loaded upon us from the time we're a year old. And I mean, the stories being unloaded on kids now are often, you know, sticking them off at the, on, a, on a console to play video games or, or computer games or to sit them in front of uh, whatever, Sesame Street or whatever, and, and go away from them. You know, it, there's an awful lot of abandoning the kid to the, but these things are, are going to be their myths that they're going to have to grow out of. Well, in my case, it was you know all the patriotic myths coming out of World War II, and uh, and then of course into the Cold War era, and then all of the religious. I, my grandfather was a Methodist preacher, and uh, the family were kind of conventional, uh, middle Midwestern middle class uh, conventional uh, Protestant people, and b fighting my way out of that mythology. And uh, that meant, you know, of course, I was dealing again with an established thing, including my own family, um, who uh, probably the most embarrassing thing that happened to them was when Public Burning came out. And uh, I'm not going to remember the reviewer's name. He's a very much a right-wing political uh, guy, George something, uh, wrote a New York Times thing saying, that Public Burning was an immoral book. And the Omaha, the Omaha Sunday newspaper picked that up and put, uh, Robert Coover is an immoral writer. And my parents had to go to church that day and deal with everybody who had read this headline. Um, but that feeling always that while you're doing it, Joyce speaks of the same thing often, that you are, you are struggling against something that is, is uh, is a kind, it, it, it constitutes a kind of political structure, simply struggle, simply because uh, it's the establishment you're trying to, to free yourself from. And that establishment reaches deep. It's not just religion, it's not just politics, it's the whole culture that we go through. And some of it is worth hanging on to, some of it's valuable, and, but it's so much of it that is constraining and, and holding back imaginations and uh, preventing uh, you know, s sensible political policy. So, in that sense, yes, I have thought of everything I do as somehow at least the, consequential. The, the the public burning, which is an astonishing achievement, and it seems to fit what you were just describing there in terms of myth and and tale. That you have the greatest American myth. You've got the Uncle Sam and his enemy, the the Phantom, almost like characters from a superhero comic. And at the same time, you're building into all those old kind of Western tales with, you know, Uncle Sam, the Yankee trapper. And it's all narrated by Nixon. Well, it's half narrated by Nixon, which I don't think I can think of any book beforehand where a, a living figure became the narrator. The thing that I found most astonishing about it was how, how sympathetic it, it, it seemed. The, the Nixon, for all that he's a monstrous figure, became almost pitiable. There's a lovely line here. And I think it applies to a lot of your, your work in different ways. Uh, my weakness, I knew, was an extreme susceptibility to love, to passion. And the way you recreate it like that is, is 
I love that coming from Nixon. That's just terrific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it must be not. There must be horrendous legal processes to go through doing that kind of... It was of difficult, yeah, yeah. It, it, there was, that was in the era before things like Saturday Night Live and all of the kind of parodic stuff that eventually became part of the common uh, everyday world. At that time, you just didn't do this. And, um, yeah, I, it was very hard to get it published. The, the, everybody uh, wanted it because it was notorious. But they didn't show it to the editors, they showed it to their lawyers, and the lawyers all said, you know, we can't do this. <laughs> and I had a, one guy that was really a, a great friend from the time when I worked at Grove Press, and wonderful editor, Dick Seaver. And uh, he, um, after coming to an understanding of where the book stood at this point, having gone through a lot of legal stuff already, managed to get Viking to accept it at a time when the house lawyer was on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the owner, the new owner, had inherited this from a couple of uncles who had run the, the great old Viking Press. And now it was becoming the thing that's now associated here with, with uh, presses here as well. Um, but at that time, it was, um, it was just making its transition into something else. And this nephew really wasn't a book person and kind of accepted the idea right away. But as soon as the lawyer came back, he told that guy, you have just, your uncles will be turning over in their graves. You have just ruined the company. They will, they will, this is the death of it. So he, he got in touch with me and he said, well, look, it's a contractor sign. We're going to do this book, but I have a few little things I'd like you to do before we do it. And I'll send them to you in the letter. And he sent me about an eight-page letter, all single-spaced, with just hundreds and hundreds of things to do. But the first line was, take out all living persons. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I had to get a lawyer myself, and um, we had to fight that out. But finally, we, we mostly won it, and, uh, and the, the text that's there is pretty much the text that I would have wanted to be there. Can we talk a bit about that extreme susceptibility to love? Because it's what unites Pinocchio's quest for Mama, the blue fairy, right the way through the blue-haired fairy, right the way through Pinocchio in Venice. It's it's Nixon's undoing in the public burning. It's what Jerry's trying to get in the party and eventually finds in a in a place that he least expected it. And it seems there's a a kind of high romanticism about this. Is that a fair comment? No, I, my my take on it is closer to Ovid's uh, notion that Eros is at the heart of the universe, and it comes from Hesiod, actually, but Ovid made the great poem out of it. And um, that uh, the feeling of that feeling is something that is not rationally controllable. I mean, we do everything we can often to control it, but it's not, it's, a, it's that other spiritual thing that, that and so I think every, every worst villain has a, a, a a streak of that. Um, it may be aimed at odd things, you know, it may be very perversely directed, but there is this, this urge somehow, and I think that all, all art, all art uh, somehow celebrates that. Even if it denies it, it's somehow a part of that engagement with, with, uh, with this kind of great Great God, this, this, this Eros thing. 
Certainly all my characters are, are you know, I, it, it turns up in a lot of ways. Sometimes it turns up in ways that are, are very familiar or very uh, intensely that had to do with the depth of, of loyalty or friendship, things like that. But sometimes it just comes in the, in the most perverse ways. Um, I wrote a whole book about a pornographic film hero just for that reason, to understand it from all possible roots with nine women filmmakers dealing with him. Um, another fairy tale, of course. And in terms of the, the fairy tale structure, when you go about them and you're looking at the sort of original sources, do you see sort of hints in them that you can see can be sort of almost cracked open to, to, to show the, the secret workings of these fairy stories? Or is it a more kind of organic process of thinking, how do I rework this story? How can I sort of move it in a different direction? Well, it has to do with, with resistance to it. You know, my writer here in the, they're trying to bring the whole house down, um, is um, that we can't sort of, this is one of Angela Carter's great uh, beliefs too, and one of the things we, we shared so much, that you, you can't uh, just say that a myth is bad and stop and forget it. You know, you say, look, look what it does, throw it out. It doesn't work that way. You have to get inside it. And by getting inside it, you can bend it or, or turn it, and you can, perhaps in some cases where you feel it's a really terrible story, you can totally undo it. But you have to, you have to do it from its own, inside its own ground, it's play it, fight it out on its own turf. And um, it can't be, in a scholarly way, rationalized away. It won't, reason won't clear the field. So um, at, least, at least as a writer, that's all I can do. I'm, I'm, maybe there is uh, some hope for a more rational way to deal with such troubling issues. But what we do as writers, I think, is we, we find our metaphors and we crawl inside them and we work them out from the inside out. And our own feelings about them emerge quite plainly by, by what people do and say. And that often has as its, one of its strong motives to actually destroy the myth. I mean, there is the hope that, you know, somehow you can do something, some character can behave in some way that will actually rupture something. If not the whole myth, at least, you know, let a little light in, as the, as the tale myth story says. <clears throat> and, um, and so, if I have a story, you know, the, the story, the political story in America at the time of, at the time of um, the, the execution of the Rosenbergs was a political story that had to be opened up, had to be cracked yeah. open. It was, yeah. it was a very bad time. Not much better now, to tell the truth, so how much cracking open we did, <laughs> you know, who can say? But um, that, that effort it was one of... of uh, combating and breaking down. Now, but when you get inside, sometimes there's things you kind of admire or want to celebrate. Not everything is, uh, is the enemy. And uh, so sometimes just in the course of a story or working with tale-telling, you find things that, are, that have a kind of positive resonance and then you want to grab onto that. It's not that we can we want to get rid of all myths because it's pretty hard to do that. 
the reason simply being that our lives are so short and that our, our attention spans are even far, far shorter and our, our ability to, you know, to pass on our communication to others is so limited and often so distorted that uh, the hope of actually um, uh, clearing the field is, of all mythology is, seems almost impossible. We, we start each day, if I asked anybody what they did today, uh, they would tell me one or two things. They wouldn't tell me from the moment they got up and started brushing their teeth, etc. They wouldn't go through all of that. But that is what's being left behind, and a little myth is being created to say what they did do. And those little myths are the, sort of the only way, these little stories we tell, are the only way we can actually put our days together and put our lives together. So everything gets abbreviated and is caught up in these little tales that become iconic tales. I mean, a lot of people who are quite rational and have very strong feelings still kind of live in something like Ulysses, like a tale, like a myth, uh, you yeah. might say. And, uh, and it's a very sustaining one. It's not a destructive one. It's not one that's, that's, um, that undoes your, your potential. It actually opens it up. So there's, there's a possibility that story, myth, tale can actually be positive. Can we have the house lights up? There's a roving mic. Uh, and if you want to put your hand up, if there's anyone that wants to right at the back to begin with. If you just wait for the... Yes, uh, I, I just just a small question, really. But in the, the story about the new thing, I thought I heard some of the cadences of Samuel Beckett, and I wondered if that, if you agree, and if so, whether there was anything to say about him as an inspiration. Yeah, it'd be a lot to say about him. Uh, I'm going to be delivering the Beckett lecture in uh, Dublin in uh, a couple of weeks' time now. Um, I, I. I resist the idea that I'm capturing his rhythms or any way imitating him. I, tr I try not to, but probably, probably it happens. He was an incredibly important influence for me uh, as a, as a uh, uh, mentor, more than as a writer, I mean more than as a, you know, reading his uh, particular style, not as a stylist would be a better way, more as a mentor than a stylist. He, um, when I was at this very kind of, this, this moment of trying to grasp what, it, what I meant when I called myself a writer and what I was going to do with my life as a writer, um, I had just happened to have fallen in love with uh, some of his work. So I, I, I'd left the Navy and I was headed to the University of Chicago for, for grad school, which was going to be an important turning point for me. And I, I needed to get away from my parents and so on, get off somewhere by myself. And I, had a friend who had a cabin on an island up in uh, Canada, just north of the Minnesota border. And I uh, asked if I could rent that for a month and went up there with uh, a jar of peanut butter. And uh, a, it, had no, uh, it had no facility, it had no electricity, no running water or anything like that. It was, and you got there by a little, uh, a little motorboat. <coughs> and so I, uh, I moved in there and I, went, I took with me the Bible, which I had decided I was going to read cover to cover like a novel and I was going to find out if there were you know if there are any good parts to it all the parts I had read I didn't like at all but I thought maybe I'd find something better if I read it through straight through see what kind of an author the this uh, capital A author was and uh, and I took all of Beckett 
and all of Beckett that existed at that time. And what I felt he really taught me was the sense of vocation. That writing not as something you did to make money or to be famous or to uh, even just the love of telling stories, but as a vocation. That you, you it, in the same way that, uh, uh, that uh, monks and nuns or, or hermits take on life in a certain way as a vocation. And that notion of writing as vocation, as opposed to writing to get published, let's say, um, sustained me through uh, you know a lot of ups and downs through writing and so on. I always felt close to his. I keep a a, a, a friend of mine. His son took a photo of him in a cafe one day. It's a very nice one, and I keep it up over my workspace. I mean, I, if I start slipping and wanting to do something. You know, somebody will buy this. I'll, I'll write a movie script or something. I look up and say, No, no, I'm not going to do that. So, so yes, he is extremely important to me, um, but not, I hope, stylistically, at least not often. But you, it's it's no doubt true that there are probably echoes that creep in. Yeah. We can perhaps sneak in another quick question. If you just wait, so we can all wait. Jamie's coming. You got it, you got it. <laughs> uh, one can't read uh, many of your books without detecting um, the operation of irony um, in, in the form. Uh, that is, your, your jokes are, are um, your jokes and your serious um, play with the form is on the surface. But you can read The Origin of the Brunus without um, without realizing the kind of writer this is going to turn out to be. And yet you're going back and working on uh, a sequel of a kind to that. I'm wondering if that will be, um, if, if, if that one could be read by someone who is naive about narrative, just as a story. I think so, yes. It's very, it, it is in fact ironic that I'm going back to that. Um, that's, that's an irony of its own. Um, as, as I think I may have mentioned, the um, uh, impulse for the first book came, the, the, my first novel came, I was already doing the more what people call experimental work. I was playing around with where I was going to go next and um, trying to get a job in, um, in the industry in uh, New York, going from door to door. I had one little story published in uh, Saul Bellows magazine and so they, they had read it and they wanted uh, to know if uh, what I was working on, I would tell them about my more inter interesting work, and they'd say, wow, don't you have something a little more like that story in Saul Bellows magazine? So it was about a coal mining disaster and so on, and so I, I began making something up on the spot. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, well, and each time I got asked, I'd add another sentence. So finally, I didn't get a job. I ended up working uh, freelancing at Grove instead, but I did get, um, I did get an idea for a book that would be uh, like a, a, a trial run. And I, th I had uh, been very fascinated with Matisse at the time and um, loved his work. I'd seen it in Europe and I was very attached to his artwork. And there was always the feeling that, well, maybe that's all he could do, this kind of pattern stuff instead. But then I found his early um, still lifes done at, at, in school and they were brilliant, they were wonderful. They were as good as anybody was doing. But he said, oh, I show you I can do that. Now I'm gonna show you what I really wanna do. And I thought, well, I'll do the same thing. So I took going down into the coal mine as a little bit like going down into the, the pits of the, the form itself and to l learn the whole thing 
by coming out with, with something that I could hang on to. I did a lot of experimenting in that book, and there's a lot of ironic stuff in there, too, and there's a lot of uh, under-the-surface um, structuring elements that are playful, and so it's not entirely, entirely, uh, but people can read it as a straightforward novel. So that was at the moment when I was having my major kind of encounter with uh, the Christian religion and with the, the, the American uh, image of it, especially as it was imposed on me. And uh, I took it on and it was very controversial and it got me a lot of uh, hate letters and so on by, by good Christians, really. <laughs> and so uh, I even, even my photo on the jacket was compared to Saint, Satan. It has a very satanic look on it. And, um, the, uh, and then I went on with doing my own, but I, I imagined a sequel at the time. I thought, well, let, let's take it the next step. Where would it go? And I kept notes for it, and every, every little break that I would have, I would think, now maybe I want to go back to it now. But then I had a better story to do, you know, something much more. When I went to Venice for a year, I thought, now I'm going to do this. I was in 87. And uh, I got there, and I couldn't write because my, there was no heat in my little loft study, and I had to wait for a window to get put into it. And I had to, it was snowing, and I had to just wander around, and I wandered around, got the story, got the idea for a story. And I ended up spending my life doing Pinocchio in Venice, and uh, spending that year, and then another year beyond it. And all that, those bagfuls of M bags full of books I'd shipped over to myself that were researched for the Bruno sequel, stayed in the bag and went right back. Um, but what I think triggered the sequel finally was the election of Bush and um, the sort of rising out of the swamps, as I think I used that phrase before you before, of, um, of these, um, these um, fundamentalists and um, evangelical types. And I thought, well, it's time to maybe do that now. And so that was a good idea when Bush was elected. <laughs> it just took me a lot longer than I thought it was going to take. And, uh, and so, uh, but I, th I think it's still relevant. They haven't gone away. The, they sort of, uh, the swamp owns the country at this point. So, um, so it's probably still worth doing. Yeah. But it, yes, in, in long-winded answer to your question, uh, I think people would, could read it as just a conventional novel. They could. There are some. There's a. There's a guy who. Uh, it's called, a little. It was published in Harper's thing called White Bread Jesus. There's a preacher, in it, Presbyterian, who uh, whose wife leaves him, and he, it, during Easter week, and he, just gets drunk, and he gets, he, drinks the wine and eats the bread. He ate a whole, eats a whole loaf of white bread, and he's dead, deathly sick, and when his sick is over. He realizes he's got a voice inside him, and it's Jesus. So he's carrying around this, and so the two characters, Jesus eventually rises to the top, and the preacher descends to the, to the pits and starts carping at the, at the guy on top. But this character is a real character, and from my viewpoint, it's a totally realistic character, who parades through this book and has a major part to play in it. Um, so I'm not, I don't leave behind these, uh, these other elements. I'm afraid we're almost out of time. We're going to be going around to the LRB bookshop where Robert's going to be signing. I really would recommend that you get the new Penguin editions of these wonderful books. And I'm sure that you'll want to 
join me in thanking the devilishly wonderful Robert Coover. We don't have time for that. I'm sorry. Thank you very much. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.